to go till 8.30? Yeah. And then we can discuss Yeah, yeah. And I don't know if you can stop for questions at like 8.20 or 8.25. They're usually actually pretty questioning. They're good questioning people. Yeah. Okay, good evening, everyone. Did you want to pray? Did you have a prayer? Okay. Um, good evening, everybody. Welcome back. I do have one announcement that I wanted to make tonight that I'd really like you guys to write down this one, and I'll send it to you in an email. I just decided this because I realized how busy the first week of March is for all of us. So I know we've got the right of sending, we have the right of election. That's the weekend of the 29th and the 1st. And then we have a Lenten mission, and then we have, um, and I know I didn't say that you have to go to the Lenten mission, because we are going to have our CIA on the Wednesday. But what I decided to do is cancel our RCIA on Wednesday, and then you guys need to go with one night of the Lenten mission. So either the Sunday night at 6.30, Monday night at 7 o'clock, or Tuesday night at 7 o'clock. So one of those three, you can go to all of them if you want. Um, but I just want you to go to at least one. Now, if you want to go to Fullness of Truth Conference, which is on Saturday, you can, you can miss a couple of CIAs for that. Uh, but that's an all-day-long um, conference, and it's, it's awesome. So, really, that's your gift. What yes. did you say? Yeah, what? What's it, March 4th? Sorry, March. March 4th? March 4th. March 4th, we will not have our CIA. And then Sunday, Monday, or Tuesday, which is the first, second, or third, um, you can choose the day that you want to go. The Sunday night is more geared for the youth, and then Monday, Tuesday, um, but it would still be fun. If they'll have contemporary Christian music on that, the Sunday nights, I don't know if that's something that you're interested in, but um, we're going to have the Sisters of Light, and they're going to talk about um, encountering Christ through the vocation to love. Um, that's our Lenten mission, and they are a beautiful group of sisters. Um, I'll tell you more about them when I talk. A little bit about my journey. Well, tonight we're so lucky to have um, Tommy Romano. Um, Tommy's another one of the perfect teachers from um, Strike Jesuit. He's been there for 30 years, um, and he's got an undergraduate in theology, um, and he just told me a minor in philosophy, and, uh, and then you have your master's in education. Mm -hmm. So, um, and Tommy's really good for most of your career. You've been at Strike. Jesuit, yeah. Yeah, so, so he helps to form our young men. He's a great teacher. So please help me welcome Tommy Romano to talk about. All right. Get the microphone adjusted so I don't blow you out the back wall. All right, here we go. Yeah, I've been, um, yeah, this is hard to believe, 28 years of education. I taught, my very first year I, I taught in Indiana right out of college, but as I like to tell people, I got back to Texas as quickly as I could because Indiana is very cold. Uh, if anybody's ever been up there. All right, let's go ahead and begin. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen. I teach at a Jesuit school, and so I thought it would be appropriate. I like to start my talks with prayers uh, attributed to St. Ignatius. This is called the Susape. Take, Lord, and receive all my liberty, my memory, my understanding, my entire will. All I have and call my own, you have given all to me. To you, Lord, I return it. Everything is yours. Do with it what you will. Give me only your love and your grace. That is enough for me. 
In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. <clears throat> it's hard for me to tell if the microphone's working, so if, if at some point you can't hear, just raise your hand. Fortunately, I was born with one of those voices that can be heard over a hurricane. You know, at least that's what my mother tells me. Um, yeah, she would say, use your quiet voice. I am using my quiet voice. All right, which I guess I was made it perfect. She said, you know, when I just got into education, she said, I should have known that you were going to be a teacher. Uh, tonight's topic, we're going to be looking at the Ten Commandments and the Beatitudes. And I often wonder what people think when they hear that this is going to be the title of the talk or when I'm talking on this title. Because it's not exactly, if you really get it down there, the most exciting part of the Bible. I mean, it's kind of, you got some nice pyrotechnics going on. You got the thunder and the clouds and the booming voice of God and people worshiping false idols down in the valley and Aaron going, oh, they gave me this gold and the thing just popped out. Yeah, likely excuse. I've heard better excuses. All right. Genesis is really cool. If we look at Genesis, you know, we got all those great stories of creation and the flood and all those wonderful things. We got some... Gets a little bit later on in the patriarchs and the matriarchs, some steamy soap opera-esque stories that are going on. I always said it would make a great uh, TV miniseries if they would just do it according to what's in the Bible. You don't have to embellish much. They got some, you know, and then, okay, you get some genealogical stuff. Then we get to Exodus, and we find out things have turned really bad for the Hebrew people. You know, they've gone from being, you know, these wonderful heroes that saved Egypt from all sorts of disaster and ushered in an age of prosperity. And then now the pharaohs have reduced them to slave labor and they're crying out. And this wonderful story about how God spares the life of Moses uh, through the diligence of his mom and his family. He's raised as an Egyptian prince. And then eventually he goes out and he sees the hardship of his people and he's, he's moved by righteous anger and kills an Egyptian taskmaster, slave driver. And, you know, and then when it's found out, he has to go on the run. And so for the next 40 years of his life, Moses spends his time in the quiet pastoral setting, shepherding sheep. And you think about it, Moses' life is kind of interesting. He had 40 years being raised as an Egyptian prince, 40 years shepherding the people, and then 40 years wandering in exile uh, as they make their way to the promised land. But that's where we pick up the story. Um, is We get to the part where Moses goes up the mountain to get the Ten Commandments. And so what I would like our perspective tonight to be kind of looking at how the Ten Commandments, why it was met with such joy by the Hebrew people. You know, because today that's just not what we see when people mention the Ten Commandments. Why, what's changed in the last, oh, say, you know, 3,200 years? It's key, no matter what presentation is being given to you in RCIA, whether you're talking about the Bible, whether you're talking about the sacraments, whether you're talking about the moral life or the life of prayer. The one key thing, and I tell all my freshman students this, if you don't remember anything else in your four years of theology at Straight Jesuit, I want you to remember this. God has a plan. God has one plan that he's always had that he's never, ever given up on. 
And that plan includes you and me. And that plan is very simple. He wants all of us to live with him and one another forever in paradise. That's God's plan from the beginning. It's the whole reason why he brought the material creation into existence. He didn't even have to bring the angels into existence. But from the very beginning, God has this plan, and he's very stubborn with this plan. And every action of God, I argue, is designed to accomplish this plan. Whether we're talking about overall worldly actions or actions within our own individual lives. My brother calls me up every so often. My brother's had a recent kind of, um, in the last three or four years, a recent reversion back to his faith. He's more on fire right now. He'll call me at 2 o'clock in the morning. I was reading Thessalonians. I'm like, Mike, it's 2 o'clock in the morning. I got to get up in two hours to teach school. And he's like, yeah, but, and he's always worried about his son. His two daughters are, are very faithful Catholics. But his son, 19 years old, thinks he knows everything. He's got his first real paying job now. And that's all he wants to do is work and make money. Yeah, I can't get him to go to church. And I'm like, and I'm fussing at him, yelling at him, threatening this. And I said, that's not the way to do it. I said, look at the two of us when we were 19 years old. You know, who of us had our heads screwed on straight at 19? I said, you got to love him into the church. And you got to trust God's plan for his life. You got to, it doesn't mean that we can sit back and just say, okay, God, it's in your hands. No, we got to be like St. Monica. We got to pray, 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 pray every day. Oop, somebody's got an alarm. Uh, <laughs> uh, and so, you know, and like I said, so we got to trust God's plan. Sometimes we get a curveball come into our life. And what we have to do is we have to keep in mind that these curveballs are really the intervention of grace into our lives, whether we recognize it as such or not. Um, but God never gives up on this plan. And part of his plan was to allow the Hebrew people to experience this period of feeling abandoned by their God so that when he does lead them out of Egypt with these miraculous signs crossing the Red Sea, Pharaoh's army being destroyed, that when they go up to Mount Sinai and Moses brings down the Ten Commandments, they are filled with joy. They are filled with joy. And let me get to that in just a second. But this should not surprise us that God gave commandments. From the very beginning, God has been giving commandments. To Adam and Eve, he said, you know, you may eat of any of the trees in the garden except that one. He also told them, be fertile and multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, have dominion. He's telling them what their job is. Now, there's two things a commandment tells us. One, it tells us we are not God. That's one of the very first lessons you learn in Theology 101. There is a God, and you're not Him. All right, those are the, two, those are the first two lessons you learn in theology. Well, God basically, by giving the commandment, says, Adam, Eve, you're very intelligent. I made you more brilliant than any of my other creatures. But... You will always in some way remain a mystery to yourself. And so I reserve the right to be your God, to be your guidance, to tell you, to inform you, to reveal to you what is best for you. 
Anyhow, so God never gives up on this plan. Of course, Adam and Eve had one, one, one really commandment, you know, do what I tell you and, and choose my will over yours. And they had trouble with that one. But even when they broke that first commandment, do not eat, God doesn't give up on the plan. He doesn't do you know, the old control, all delete, you know, and let's reboot this system. Let's come up with Eden 2.0. Let's keep running this scenario till it runs right and we get all the bugs out of the system. God doesn't do that. His first action is to reach out with the hand of reconciliation. Reach out with that hand of reconciliation. He, where are you? Who told you you were naked? He's not fussing at them. He's trying to get them to admit what they've done. They already feel sorry for it. If they can admit what they've done, he can do something about it. But if they don't admit what they've done, they've in effect tied his hands. But they haven't thwarted his plan. Maybe the plan has to be altered, but the goal is still the same. And so what we see is throughout the Old Testament, we see a series of covenants that God enters into with his people. These covenants are family bonds. That's the difference between a contract and a covenant. A covenant invites us into family. That's what we call marriage, a covenant. It unites two families. Whereas a business partnership, you know, they come and go. And sometimes they're worth the paper they're written on, and sometimes a handshake's your best, your best contract, depending on the person. But a covenant is more binding. It means if one side breaks the covenant, the other side is still responsible for being faithful to it. Well, guess who's always breaking the covenant? Israel. Guess who's always faithful and renewing the covenant? God. And that tells us something. Now, the reason why I go through all that is, okay, wait, you know, you're just taking a long time to get to the Ten Commandments and the Beatitudes. John Paul II, St. John Paul II, I love saying that, uh, is because he's my, he was my favorite pope, uh, one of my favorite saints now. Um, he said that if you're going to understand anything about the Catholic faith, you've got to understand those first three chapters of Genesis. Creation, the fall, you've got to understand that, that we're good, but we're fallen, and God doesn't give up on us, that he's not giving up on his plan. All right, so the biggest, most important moment in the Old Testament of these covenants is the giving of the Ten Commandments. And as I said and alluded to, when Moses comes down the mountain with the commandments, they are filled with great joy. There's rejoicing. Contrast that with today where people are ripping down monuments of the Ten Commandments as being oppressive or they're not allowed to even be talked about in, in schools. When they're the foundation of Western civilization, whether you're a Christian, a Jew, a Buddhist, a Muslim, or an atheist, I think we can all agree that you shouldn't steal, you shouldn't lie, you shouldn't, you know, you shouldn't kill. I mean, that, I mean that's just kind of like basic good societal living. I mean, otherwise it's just chaos. But what made Israel react, sorry, <laughs> what made Israel react with such great joy? Well, contrast their God, Yahweh, with all the pagan gods that they knew of the Egyptian people. Every year, the Egyptians would go through elaborate rituals to please their gods. There were some really weird rituals in ancient Egypt, let me tell you. We won't even go into some because this is a 
PG environment. But anyhow, and so every year they do the same thing. Sometimes they would get good rain and the Nile would flood and, and make everything nice and fertile along the banks. And sometimes they wouldn't get the reaction. Now, if you think that there's something up there or someone up there who's responding to your actions here and you're doing the same action every year and you're getting a different result, you can understand why the ancient Egyptians and the ancient Greeks and the ancient Romans thought that the gods were a little goofy and fickle and that every time they interacted with us, we always got the short end of the stick. You know, we always, somebody's going to get messed over when the gods start coming down and interacting with us because it was a, it was a, a crapshoot. Are, are we going to, did we do it right this year? Are they going to be pleased? The gods were just spoiled brats when you got right down to it. Why? Because it's not really real. It didn't matter what action I did here. It, the weather was going to do what the weather was going to do. If there was going to be an earthquake or a volcanic eruption, it was just going to happen. Had nothing to do with this little ritual of throwing stuff in the Nile and, and whatever. So now we have a God who says, you don't have to guess what pleases me. I'm laying it out for you. And ironically, it's not about what pleases God that's paramount. It's what's best for us. That's what pleases God is what's best for us and what's going to put us on the quickest, safest path to that goal of being with him and one another forever in paradise. And so this is why even other nations said, what kind of God is the God of the Israelites who loves them so much that he reveals his will to them? Even the other nations kind of sat back and said, dang, our gods don't talk to us and tell us, you know, lay out 10 nice, yeah, 10 rules. That's really easy. I can memorize that. No elaborate rituals. I mean, there were some elaborate rituals that God put down. The building of the ark, the, you know, the storing of the Ten Commandments, the making of the meeting tent, all that kind of stuff in Leviticus that just makes you think, I hope this coffee is not decaf. You know, I mean, this is, you know, that's the kind of, you know, thing that you get in Leviticus and Numbers and, and, and that sort of thing. So, <clears throat> I think, I think, therefore, I think it's kind of funny when I see, this was about, oh, 20 years ago. Some of you aren't even old enough to remember this, but Ted Turner, who started CNN, um, and said that he thought that there needed to be a new Ten Commandments for a new age. Yeah, my immediate thought, I was, I was, uh, God, it had to be longer than that because I was an undergraduate and I've been teaching for 27 years. So, yeah, it's had to be closer to 30 years ago he said this. And, and I, I remember thinking, and who's going to write these Ten Commandments, Ted? You? You know, who are we going to let? The Pope? Uh, you know, so, you know, no, the Ten Commandments are not outdated. One of my favorite writers, G.K. Chesterton, said to say that something was, was good, you know, a long time ago, but it's no longer good today, is like saying something was good on Tuesday, but not on Thursday. It, you know, the time period doesn't make a difference. Truth is truth. Beauty is beauty. And so, uh, anyhow, um, so what I would like to do, and the way I'd like to cover the Ten Commandments with my students is, is where uh, we look at them as sort of like an examination of conscience. 
You know, because it's really good. I mean, to kind of look at my life in light of what God says is best for me. How have I responded positively to that? And where have I fallen short of the ideal? Because that is the best way to do an examination of conscience. I remember years ago going to reconciliation and the priest, you know, said to me, well, you did a very good job of showing where you have failed to live up to God's, you know, living up to God's you know, standard for you. Have you done anything right? Said, well, yeah, because well, tell me a little bit about that self. We really got to have to look at both. Where am I in the, in, on that scale? So the first commandment is, I am, I am the Lord your God. You shall have no other gods before me. As I said earlier, the very first thing you learn in theology is there is a God. Second thing you learn is, I'm not him. Now, a lot of my students will say, really, do we really need this one? I mean, we're a pretty advanced culture now. People either believe in God or they don't. But there's nobody that's believing in Hera or Zeus or Achilles or Pluto, you know, other than the planet or the Disney character. You know, so do we really need to like, can we just kind of skip over that first commandment? Is it really still needed? And I say, oh, yes, it is. Polytheism is still the norm in our society. Now, there's nobody out there worshiping Zeus or Zorkon, the space god, or a flying spaghetti monster or anything like that. But there's a lot of pressure for us today even to worship false gods, to put something else in God's place. That's what it means to commit idolatry, to treat something as God that is not God. We've replaced the old gods with new gods. Now, who are these new gods? Well, I can list them right now by name, but let's just categorize them. Celebrities, athletes, politicians. These are our new gods. Oh, what is so-and-so saying? You know, I remember when Kim Kardashian first came on the scene. My nieces were just little. And I couldn't for the life of me figure out why she was famous. And I said to my niece, what is she famous for? I didn't know what I was asking. And I said, what is she famous for? And she says, uh, she's famous for being famous. And I thought, what wisdom out of a 10-year-old? You know, yeah, she's famous because just she's famous. And now it's like, how many Instagram followers do you have? How many hits are on your YouTube channel? And all this other kind of thing. Somebody, I read an article the other day that was talking about how the, the most endangered species is the celebrity because now anybody can be a celebrity. You just get enough likes, you get enough followers, right? And think about it, I mean, I'm guilty. You know, do I know this person? I don't know, I don't know, but you know what? My friend Kyle's got about five more listeners, or five more followers than I got now, so will help catch me up a little bit, all right? I mean, what a stupid thing to like have a competition over. Yeah, we fall guilty to it, right? What about our cell phones and social media? One of the worst and best things that Apple ever did last year was put out that screen time app that like reports every week how much time you have spent on social media. Just looking at your phone, it was like, no way, there's no way I spent an average of that much time per day. I've got a job. I teach kids eight hours a day. 
And then I start to think, well, start times. Yeah, I probably do. <clears throat> and what's kind of funny is that you walk around campus, our campus, and you know everybody's like this. <clears throat> I'm like, one of these days, you know, and they'll walk and bump right into you. It's like one of these days, I'm just going to shoulder down and just let the person run into me. Hello. One of the saddest things I see, I see, you know, I'm single, so I go out and eat a lot by myself, especially if there's nothing in the house, you know, and nobody's available. I'll go out and grab dinner by myself, and I'll bring a book or whatever, and I like to people watch, and I probably should have been an anthropologist. And so, and, and so I'll see, like, a young couple out on a date, and it's obviously, you know, they're young, they're in their teens, and, you know, he's on his phone, she's on her phone, and I'm thinking to myself, man, this is a relationship that's got a really killer start to it, you know? They are really, or, or now how I work with young boys, and, you know, the first major thing is homecoming, and they just... You know, um, I, I need a date for homecoming, you know, and I was like, well, I'm thinking about texting. So I was like, you're going to ask a girl on my text? Are you crazy? Got it up and go talk to her. Yeah, but her friends will be around. I said, that's part of the rite of initiation, you know, <laughs> that her girlfriends are going to be around. Me, 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 me. And, and, you know, and you're going to have to kind of like show that you're man enough to, to walk through that barrage of chatter and actually ask the girl out. That's part of it. And so one of the kids last year was like, oh, I don't know if I can do that. I said, I tell you what, I said, if you do it, I'll give you 100 on your next test. <laughs> okay. And so like the next day he came in, I said, so how did it go? She said, yeah. I said, see, it wasn't that hard. I go, look up, don't have a relationship via text message. I wish they had an app that told me each week how much time I spent in prayer. Think about that. Would it be anywhere close to the time I spend in social media? You know, St. Paul said, pray at all times. Now, he didn't mean, you know, we got jobs, we got families, we got responsibilities. But he means is turn your daily life into a prayer. Now, it's amazing that I can easily, easily waste a half hour, 45 minutes just thumbing through and checking messages and alerts and notifications and stuff like that. But if I've got a little time to kill before I need to leave to go to work or I'm leaving to, for another appointment and I'll sit there and I'll say, you know, and I'll, I'll feel the movement in the spirit. Hey, why don't you sit down and pray a rosary? Oh, man, that takes like 15 minutes. And yet I'll pull out that phone and kill three times that amount of time would not pray my rosary. And so, yes, we do have idols today. We have to look at that. What priority does God place in my life? If there were a screen, if the screen time app had a parallel screen that spent how much time you spend in prayer, where would be that balance? I'm not saying, I'm not, you know, social media is bad. And da, 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 da. No, no, it's good. It's like any other thing. It's neutral. It's the way we use it. But what priority does it take? And so, I am the Lord your God. You shall have no other gods before me. Do we, how much do we unplug and spend time with him in prayer, talking? Secondly, do not take the name of your Lord your God in vain. Now, Moses asked for God's name at the time of his calling. And I don't think that we fully appreciate the value of knowing someone's name 
as it was in the old culture. To know someone's name meant to have some power and authority over them. That's why parents are given the great responsibility of naming their children. They have a certain authority over their children, and therefore they get to choose the name. Now, families may not agree with it, but guess what? It's the parent's right to choose. It's a parent's gift to choose the name for that child. It's very important. Anybody who's ever been a teacher knows it's very important to learn the names of your students very quickly. Because if they catch on that you don't know their name, oh my gosh, they're going to get away. They're, they're going to start acting because until you know my name, you can't hold me responsible. You say, hey, you, there, the blue hoodie, you just keep walking. There's five people in a blue hoodie. But if I say Johnny Smith, uh, I've been nailed. You know, so I make a point to know my kids' names so I can call on them by name. There's a great book called Tattoos on the Heart. I highly recommend it. It's written by a Jesuit priest who works with gang members. And, you know, of course, the thing with the gang members is you got your street name, right? And so the first thing he does when he goes to the gang members, he says, hey, what's your name? My name is, you know, Sledgehammer or whatever. And he says, no, 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 what's the name your mom gave you? And she's, you know, Valentino. Yeah, I'm sure, you know, she looks at you and says, Valentino, what does she call you? Tino. Okay, Tino, that's what I'm going to call you. And his, the whole point of that chapter is lots of these little stories are great. He says, all of us desire to be called by the name our mom calls us when she's not mad at us. Right? And so this is why we say God calls us by name. He doesn't call us by groups. He calls us individually. He calls us by our name. And he gives us his name. Any more than we would want somebody abusing our name, calling us, in, you know, just, you know, you know how irritating like a pocket dial is, right? And it's like, ah, it's my dad. So chances are it's going to be a pocket dial. You know, and so I pick it up. Sure enough, it's, he's on the exercise bike and, you know, the phone's going. And so it's like, you know, it's a little irritating. Well, imagine when people say God's name and they're not really thinking about it. And that's intentional. They're saying the name. And what does it mean to use God's name in vain? It means use it carelessly. God gives us his name because he wants us to use it. But he wants us to use it so we can get into a relationship with him. It's hard to get into a relationship with somebody if you don't know his name or her name. It's one of the very first things we usually ask people. What's your name? And then you give them your name. Why? Because you're initiating a relationship. God gives us his name. It should never be used carelessly. It should be never be used as just a, a means of expressing anger or frustration. And it's certainly not to condemn someone else. That is to abuse God's name. God gave us his name. We should not use it carelessly. How have I been on that? Do I use God's name carelessly? Or when I do use the name of the Lord, I, I call on him with, with, with great love, affection. I call on him when I need something, when I want to talk, when I want to celebrate, when I want to grieve. He's ready and willing and able to listen and to respond to us no matter what. But the one thing he doesn't want is a pocket dial. Alright, let's not pocket dial God. Let's, let's really make it a, a true conversation. Third, honor the Sabbath day and keep it holy. How easy it is for us, 
especially for those of us who have jobs we love. Oh, I'm going to get caught up on this grading all right, after Mass, and then I'll be able to kind of relax a little bit when I get into the, in the office on Monday. But God rests on the Sabbath in the creation stories to give us an example. In John's Gospel, we have a similar situation. Jesus washes the feet of the apostles, something that just flabbergasted them. I know when you read the Gospels, it doesn't always come across that way. But washing feet was considered so lowly a task that a servant couldn't even be made to do it by, by his, his boss. And so for Jesus, Lord and Savior, to wash their feet, and what does he say afterwards? What I have done, you must also do. I've given you an example to follow. If I've washed your feet, you must go out and wash the feet of others. He's telling, he's giving them their commission as the first bishops. You've got to go out there and continue my ministry. And if that means washing people's feet or something even more, do you find disgusting? That's what you must do if it means saving souls. All right. And so in Genesis, God rests. Why does God want us to rest? Well, one reason is so we can take time out and give him thanks and praise. Help us fulfill that first commandment, right? We take one day out to give God thanks, to thank him for everything that we have, our jobs, our life, our health, our family, our friends, the, the things that surround us sometimes that we take for granted. If we never stop and say, thank you, Lord, we, we run the risk of ingratitude. Thinking, and we run the risk of thinking we've achieved this through our own efforts. I've done this. I went out. I got that degree. I got that job over everybody else who wanted that job. I work hard. I put in the extra overtime. Well, the reason that I have an ability to get an advanced degree and get a job teaching and to hold it for as long as I have and to achieve what I have and to use that to buy my house and my car and go on vacations is because God first blessed me with those talents. It's a remembrance of that. It's also a good way to reconnect with our families and our friends, to have those dinners where we put down our phones. We used to have a thing when my nieces and nephew were younger, when we'd have dinner at the table, especially when we went out to eat. You know, we'd put the phones down in the middle of the table, and whoever grabbed their phone first had to pay for the meal. And so, you know, and our family knows how to eat. So, uh, so anyhow, so my nieces and nephew didn't want to spend, you know, three months allowance on dinner. They kept their hands off of their phones and we actually had conversation. Human work is a good and it's a necessity. It's blessed by God. It's also a necessity that we work so that we can get good perspective on our work and come back to it refreshed and with, the new, with renewed perspective. So it's very important that we take time out to rest. One of the things that I've been very bad about on the Sabbath, you know, I go to church. I don't think I missed Mass. I can't remember the last time I missed Mass, except if I was sick or something. I go to Mass on Sunday. You know, I even might stay after, get there a little early, 10, 15 minutes early, look over the scriptures, pray a little bit, uh, stay after to go spend some time in the chapel. And then I go home. I don't interact with anybody. Uh, I think I interact with people all week long. 
And I'm kind of an introvert, believe it or not. And so, you know, I get recharged when I get home and everything's quiet, you know. And so one of the things I've been challenging myself with is that we have a whole adult lecture series at my parish every Sunday. And we have people from the parish talk about a variety of subjects. I've given a couple of talks to make myself go to those talks. And guess what? Now, when I go to church, I'm like, I can list everybody in the first four views. I can call them by name. I know them because I've sat with them. I've talked with them. I've been to a Bible study. I've been to, you, you taught scripture for 20 years. You can always learn something. All right. And, I, and most of all, I did it so I could get to know my fellow parishioners. And so it's really become more like a family. And I look forward to going to church more than just because I get to receive the sacraments. But I get to worship with my friends. I get to worship with my family. Fourth, honor your father and your mother. This commandment isn't just about our parents, but about the whole preceding generation, those that are older than us. And just as with the unborn in our society, we are becoming more and more hostile to the elderly. This was predicted in Humana Vitae. It's first going to, you know, birth control, artificial methods of birth control will lead to the separation of the gift of life from sexual activity. It'll eventually lead to abortion. And at the time when it was written, everybody goes, you're crazy. That's craziness. Who could go for abortion? And then eventually it would lead to euthanasia of the old. And so now we're starting to see, you know, societies like, I forget what country it was, I think it was Switzerland, that bragged that they had eliminated you know, they had eliminated um, Down syndrome. Well, that was easy. They identified all the Down syndrome babies in vitro and had them aborted. Yeah, that's one way to eliminate it. But now, assisted suicide, a very nice phrase for, we used to call it at least mercy killing. Now we call it euthanasia. Put a fancy Greek word on it. We don't, everybody thinks they're talking about children in China. You know, euthanasia? What's that, you know? Um, <laughs> no, it's it's... And what's so odd is that euthanasia in Greek means happy death. Now, I read the other day, one of the states in our very own beloved United States is allowing prisoners, instead of having to spend life in prison, having been sentenced to death, the option of suicide. And we'll provide the drugs. And we'll provide, I don't know why they sterilize the, the arm before they put the lethal injection in. It kind of seems superfluous, all right? But here we are, we're becoming more and more what John Paul II calls a culture of death. Instead of putting these people to death, why don't we go visit them? I did prison ministry for about five years. Some of the best friends I made were on the inside at one time. My brother, that's one of the reasons why he's gotten so excited about his faith, is that he's gotten really involved in the Knights of Columbus and the Axe Retreat, and now he does prison ministry. He actually, they go in and they take the Axe Retreat into the prisons. And so, you know, honor your father and your mother. Our culture attacks life in its most vulnerable areas, the very young and the very old. As someone who's officially now one of the older guys on campus, I see, you know, sometimes at faculty meetings, the, the roll of the eyes when I say something about lowering of our standards, 
or a subtle shake of the head when I say, you know, you know, we used to actually work a little harder around here than we used to. And maybe it's a little bit of a, you know, a, a happy memory, if you will. But do we patiently listen to the stories about friends and places that are long ago gone? There's a font of wisdom in our elderly. Um, our parents, how often do we check in on them on their terms, not by text message? Isn't it funny? Our parents are always learning to communicate on our terms ever since we were very young. They talk to us when we're very young in words we can understand. They're patient with us when we're in, you know, when we're unreasonable teenagers. And they oftentimes, I'm sure, bit their tongues. And now that we're older and we've moved past the outdated and you know, antiquated telephone call, you know, they're having to catch up and learn text messaging and social media so they can have some contact with us. Do I call my mom, my dad, on the telephone? Or do I drop by their house? Doesn't have to be a birthday, doesn't have to be Mother's Day. Maybe it's Thursday and I just drop by. I always call first because my parents told me to be polite and let people know when you're coming over. Don't assume. I remember I go over and my, when my mom wasn't there one time, I just happened to be in the neighborhood and dad says, yeah, she's out at the church doing something. He said, you should have called first. I was like, yeah, you're right, dad. I should have called first. But we had a good conversation, my dad and I. But do we meet them and meet them on their terms? Do we make them feel like they're an inconvenience or that they are loved and they are a font of wisdom and that we will miss them dearly when they are no longer with us? St. Paul likes to point out in his letter to the Ephesians, this is the first commandment that has a promise. Honor your father and your mother that it may go well with you and you may have a long life on earth. You shall not kill. This is not just avoiding the taking of a life, but the degrading of life as well. We talked a little bit about that before in the fourth commandment. I teach a course on Tolkien. Anybody here read The Lord of the Rings or The Hobbit or seen the movies? Okay, some people here. All right. There's a book that he <clears throat> that came out after his death by his son called The Silmarillion. And in the first part of The Silmarillion, if you don't read any other part of it, and it's a difficult book, um, there's Tolkien's creation story. And in the creation story, God, the God figure, makes it very clear that he is the only one capable of creating life, that the gift of life belongs with him and him alone. And that these very first creatures he creates are powerful, angelic beings. And one of them gets the idea to try to create life forms. And he goes through the long explanation of why that's impossible, because life belongs to me. I'm the only one that can give it. And I give it where I will. And I take it where I will. Um, this life is called the secret fire. If you've ever seen that iconic scene where Gandalf's on the bridge, I'm a servant of the secret fire. Gandalf is saying, I'm a servant of life. I'm a servant of God. Anyhow, but we do not have the right to take life because we didn't give it. It's not ours to take. 
And our own life is not ours to take. We didn't, we are not the origin and giver of our own life. Our own life is a gift of God. And so we have to uplift life. One of the things that caused me to come back to my Catholic faith, because um, in high school, I was very active in my faith life. In my first few years of college, I was in pre-med uh, and just didn't really reject my faith, but got away from the practice of my faith. And when I decided pre-med wasn't my thing after I'd spent countless numbers of hours and countless numbers of dollars studying it, I switched, I transferred to the University of St. Thomas, didn't know what I wanted to do, but I took my, but we were required to take theology and philosophy. Isn't funny how God works? And so I took my very first theology class and I just was, and I was there by this time, I wasn't hostile about my faith, but I thought the Catholic Church was really behind the times on certain teachings. And I was going to be the one that was going to be able to point out the flaws and the arguments. And I had very wise teachers who said, okay, fine, you can argue the contrary position, but you better have good, solid arguments for it. You better have exclusively, completely defeated the argument. And I couldn't do it. And the one thing that brought me back to the practice of my faith was the fact of the, the church's unbending stance on life, human life in all its forms, shapes, sizes, and colors. And that anything that upheld human life and, and promoted life was gonna be supported by the church. And anything that tore down at the dignity of life was gonna be fought and rejected by the church. If you wanna boil all of the church's teachings down to that one fundamental thread, it's that we are a church of life. We believe in the dignity of the human person made in God's image and likeness that's inextricably connected to who we are as his children, his sons, his daughters. We're all one family. And that we're gonna protect life, we're gonna defend life, we're gonna support life, and we're gonna reject any force that attempts to destroy it, kill it, devalue it, degrade it. That's what brought me home. And so this is why, fifth commandment, you shall not kill. But in order to kill somebody, we don't have to lift a finger, do we? We can kill by just a few words. Oh, hmm. somebody decided to show up to work on time today. Oh, we don't know what that person's gone through, what their home life situation. Maybe they do try to make it to work on time every day and they're always late. And the last thing they need when they get to work on time for once and they're feeling pretty rocking about themselves is that little snide comment. Right? We don't, I mean, we know exactly the words. I've always been amazed at how, and we know this in our own homes, it's the worst. You can come home to a situation, everybody's laughing, and you know there's about two or three well-placed sentences you can make and have everybody at their throats. You know, or we can go into a situation where there's strife and suffering and disagreement, and with a few well-placed words, build everybody up and bring everybody back together. Right? And so, do we uphold life? Not just am I avoiding killing people, but am I a person that promotes life? If I see somebody's dignity under attack, do I defend them? Um, I, I love seeing in the lunchroom, the freshman year, there's always those quiet freshmen that are always sitting and eating lunch by themselves. 
you know, they don't always have somebody from their middle school that went to Jesuit. And you'll see the guys go over and say, hey, come sit with us. You know, hey, come on, come, come sit with us. You know, we, we got, you know, we've got a, we were, we're playing this video game. Here, here's an iPad. Join in with the game. You know, including somebody, inviting them in, uh, reaching out to neighbors in the neighborhood that you know might be going through a rough time. Um, you know, my next door neighbor, her dad recently passed away. And so it's like, you know, the neighborhood has come together to make sure, you know, she's okay. She lives by herself. And so, you know, drop in and, and drop off a casserole with the excuse that it gives us time to sit in and talk with her and make sure she's okay. You know, all her family is out of town. You know, do you do stuff like that? Um, you know, that is how we build up life. You should not commit adultery. <clears throat> this includes all sexual immorality, not just adultery. Many people might argue that, well, if God is worried about my soul, what does he care what I do about my body? Well, the answer is pretty simple. You know, Yoda might have told Luke, luminous beings we are, not this crude matter, you know. Yeah, we're luminous beings, but this body is not just a bag that's holding my soul. Some fleshy bag that's going to just die and, you know, disintegrate when I die. No, this body is made in God's image and likeness. It's just as much a part of who I am as my soul. In fact, it's the soul and the body together that make me me and that make you you. This is why when we somebody passes away, <clears throat> we don't just sit there and you know put them on the curb to be picked up with the heavy trash. We have funeral rites. We bless the body. We bury it in holy ground because the very end of our creed tells us that at the end of time, Jesus is going to raise this body and renew it. Not just give us some brand new body off the shelf. Because if so, I want one that's a little taller and has more hair. All right. Now, fortunately, hopefully, when I get the resurrected body, the hair will come back with it. But I would like to lose about 20 pounds, uh, you know, when we go with this. Now, it will be the same body. We see the resurrected body of Jesus. It bears the marks of the crucifixion, and yet somehow it's been radically changed and transformed. God knows that to be fully human, our bodies, and what we do with our bodies is very important. <clears throat> In a sense, we don't belong to ourselves. Just like we didn't give ourselves lives, I didn't give myself this body. My parents gave me this body, but it is God that gave it life. Any action that tears apart at that dignity of my body is just as bad as it tearing apart at me. Sexual sins have the a unique ability to tempt us to objectify other people. I get the question from my teenage boys all the time. What, when do you know it's lust? So that's a good question. Because sexual attraction is, is good and intended by God. I said, sexual attraction becomes lust when you engage your imagination. When we start to treat somebody less as a person and more as a body part. And so that's what we've got to be on guard against, objectifying people. Growing up, you know, my parents always taught us, love people, use things. Never the other way around. Love people, use things. Never the other way around. 
Seventh commandment, you shall not steal. Respecting the dignity of the property of others is very important. To second-guess a person of being wealthy for what he or she has, whether it's big or little, is second-guessing God, who's the giver of all gifts. Our, in our cultural and political climate, there are a lot of people out there making the argument. And I've even heard it. At some point, you've just made enough money. Well, that would change. I mean, what's enough money for me might not be what's enough money for you and, and vice versa. God knew long before Thomas Locke or Thomas Jefferson or Benjamin Franklin that private property and freedom of conscience go hand in hand. To steal someone's livelihood or to say that they do not deserve the fruits of their labor is the very definition of slavery. God tells us not to steal because he doesn't want us to enslave others. You're working for me. That's what stealing says. You don't deserve that. I'll take it. So stealing, if a person is wealthy. Now, yes, we have a responsibility with the wealth that we have been given. The wealth we have earned. The wealth that God has placed in our path. To take care of our needs and the needs of those who are dependent upon us. And those who cannot take care of themselves. Yes, we have that responsibility. Church has a whole social teaching on responsible use of wealth. And if somebody is not using his or her wealth responsibly, if they're using it irresponsibly, that's an accounting that it's not my job to take care of. I can warn, I can try to convince, I can try to persuade, but it's not my job to play judge, jury, and executioner. In the end, that person is going to go before judgment and it's not going to be uh, a politician or a pundit or a teacher. All right. It's going to be God who's going to say, what did you do? When did you see me hungry? When did you see me naked? When did you see me in prison and not meet my needs? Well, as often as you did it, you did it for me. And as often as you didn't do it, you, you didn't do it for me. Matthew 25. Eighth commandment, you shall not bear false witness. It's put in the context of courtroom evidence. Not of all occasions of lying rise to the, le uh, to the level of committing perjury. Um, but it doesn't mean that I should take that, that any less seriously. Human beings among all the other creatures that God made have the ability to communicate and communicate with great precision in various different ways, both with our words, with our facial expressions, our body language. And so we should always use the gift of speech <coughs> and communication in accordance with the reason God gave us this. Why did God give us this gift to communicate? God gave us the gift to communicate so that we could spread the truth. We could inform, we could teach, we could evangelize. We can encourage. That's what our great gift of speech is for. And so if I purposely use that speech to deceive, to trick, to demean, well then I'm really abusing the gift. 
And so I need to not bear false witness. I need my yes to mean yes and my no to mean no. I don't need to engage in all sorts of sophistry and fancy arguments. Speak plainly. Let us know what you mean. Mean what you say, say what you mean. We all know those people that are honest. Aren't they refreshing even though they irritate us sometimes? I remember a friend of mine, my best friend from high school, and she came in town to visit one time. And she says, I have good news to tell you. I said, you don't sound too confident about it. And she says, uh, Rick, this was her, her boyfriend, we've decided to move in together. And I say, oh. She goes, I just wanted to get your thoughts. I said, well, you pretty much know what my thoughts are. And she says, yeah, everybody is happy for us and telling us is great. I knew you would tell me the truth. And I said, doesn't mean I love you any less. Just mean I can't, I can't in all conscience say that I'm happy for you. I'm happy that you're happy, but I, I can't say this is a situation that's ultimately going to make you happy. You know, and so I had to bear witness to the truth, and I, I, I was afraid that it might cause a rift in our relationship. But being honest doesn't always mean that we have to be brutally honest with people. We can be tactful. Sometimes the best thing we can do is shut our mouths, right? And so uh, I don't have to necessarily lie if it's not any of my business, right? The ninth and tenth commandments deal with covetousness. Covetousness is not just the desire to have something. Ooh, my next door neighbor just got a brand new car. And ooh, my car's kind of looking rinky-dink. Maybe I need to go get me a new car. Maybe it's time I start thinking So I look at the budget and I redo some things. If I do this, in a couple of months I could save up enough for a down payment and, you know, and I can make these payments. But no, covetousness is I want her car. I want his car. You know, again, it's kind of very closely related, the ninth and the 10th commandment to the sixth and the seventh commandment. Because the ninth commandment is you shall not covet your neighbor's wife. And of course, the sixth commandment is about adultery. And the 10th commandment is you shall not covet your neighbor's possessions, which the seventh is related to the seventh. You shall not uh, steal. Now. Why does God tell us to guard our thoughts? Because our thoughts often lead to actions, right? Oh, I haven't done anything. I'm just kind of leering around a little bit or kind of like salivating over that new ride that she's got. Well, that's, that's putting me in a bad spiritual position. It's tempting me to do things that maybe are going to lead to actions. Now, we got some time to switch and now over to the New Testament. Um, the new, if, it's often said that if you want to know in the Old Testament, if you were right with God, you looked at the law. What does the law have to say? In the New Testament, if you want to know if you're right with God, you look to your neighbor. They're both right, but one brings it more closer to the heart. And that's exactly what Jesus did. In the Sermon on the Mount found in Matthew's Gospel, starting in chapter 5, goes through chapter 5 through 7. And the very first thing that Jesus does, and remember, Matthew's writing to primarily Christians who were once Jewish, who now are Christians. And so having Jesus on the side of a mountain delivering his law would have brought echoes of Moses. 
So right there at the very beginning, we are seeing connection between Jesus and Moses. The guy who gave us the Ten Commandments, or who God gave the Ten Commandments through, and Jesus, God himself. And the very first thing that Jesus says when he begins the Sermon on the Mount, I have not come to do away with the law. I have come to fulfill it. I'm not here to do away with even the smallest part of a smallest letter. And we'll see here, some people say something, well, you know, that was that Old Testament stuff. We don't have to really pay attention to that because we got Jesus and anything goes with Jesus. Tell that to the Pharisees. Yeah, so anyhow. Um, so the very first part of the Sermon on the Mount is called the Beatitudes. It comes from a word that means happy. It, it, can be, it can be translated happy or blessed. So depending on your translation of the Bible, it might say blessed are those who... And then it might, or it might say, happy are they who, all right? So it depends on how the translator translated it. Um, let me get here. Okay. So one of the things Matthew's hoping to do is show how Jesus is fulfilling the law. He's bringing it home. He's refining it. He's, he's, he's zooming in that microscope just a little tighter to get a nicer, nicer picture. And so the very first things he says is, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, I, ask, I always do this with my freshman students when we cover the Beatitudes. What does it mean to be poor in spirit? And people say, oh, you don't have a good relationship with God. And you'll get something along that vein. And that could be good. How could that person be blessed for those who don't have a good relationship with God? That makes no sense. So we have to understand what it means to be poor in spirit. Poor in spirit means it has nothing to do with material wealth. You can be the richest person in the world and be poor in spirit. You can be the poorest person on the planet and be rich in spirit. Because it has nothing to do with how much you have in the bank or how much you possess. But it's attachment over you. And so... I like to compare and contrast the story of the young rich man that comes up to Jesus. What must I do to have eternal life? Jesus says, well, what does the law tell you? Do not kill, do not commit adultery, do not steal. And the young man must be a good kid because he looked at Jesus and said, I've done all these since I was a kid. I've obeyed the commandments ever since I was a kid. What more must I do? He knows that there's something more than just following the law. What is it more? And Jesus looked at him, and it, the, the, the gospel says, looked at him with love and said, go sell what you own and come follow me. He's inviting that young man to be an apostle. You ever think about that? Not everybody did he say, come follow me. He says, give up everything and come follow me. Just like he did with Peter, James, John, Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew. He told all of them, leave what you have and come follow me. And they did. This young kid walks away sad. And Jesus says, oh, how hard it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of heaven. And a lot of people take that as, oh, Jesus condemning the wealthy. No, Jesus had plenty of wealthy friends. That's why I like to compare this rich young man with Lazarus. Lazarus was very wealthy. His sister had a jar of perfumed oil that cost a year's wage. Median salary in the United States is somewhere around $54,000. Any of you ladies have a $54,000 bottle of perfume that you're willing to crack open and anoint Jesus' feet with? 
I'd be going, Lord, yeah, you Lord, but I'm <laughs> this is expensive. You know, I'll go get the cheaper stuff for you. You know, no, but you know, I mean, so they're very wealthy. He never tells them to give up. And remember when she does it, all the apostles are like, we could have sold that and fed the poor forever. Jesus, oh, just hold your horses. You know, you're always going to have the poor with you, but you know, I'm here with you now. And she did a nice thing. She's preparing me for burial. All right. And so it's not about the wealth. It's your attachment. So poor in spirit means not letting your possessions possess you. Being generous with what you have. Putting your heart in heaven. What does it say? Where your, where your heart is, that's where your riches will be. Well, the poor in spirit, their heart is in heaven. All right. Next one. Blessed are they who mourn, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Nobody likes to mourn, so what is Jesus talking about? He's not talking about absolute misery. He's talking rather about an interior sadness over sin and suffering in the world. We look around the world and we see others suffering. We see inequality. We see injustice. We see sin. We see brokenness. How does that affect us? Do we have a hard heart towards it? Or do, does our heart go out? Do we, does it motivate us to do something about it? Well, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Why? Because we are working those people who mourn and it moves them to go out and do something about it. We are doing what Christ commanded, and that is building up the kingdom of God here on earth by trying to do what we can in our little corner of the world to, to heal those hurts. And the only way we're motivated to do it is if we get it in the fields enough, right? To go out there and motivate us to do something about it. This word compassion gets thrown around a lot. It, it, it comes from two Latin words, cum passio, which means to suffer with. I just don't throw money at the problem. I go and enter into it with you. I walk that road with you. And that's what it means. We can say, blessed are those who have compassion, that they enter into the sufferings of others. Because it's an amazing thing. When we share somebody else's burden, the burden is cut in half. But when we share our joys, it's doubled. It's funny how God arranged it that way. As Mother Angelica once said, the founder of EWTN, a person's sanctity should not be measured by the degree of droop on their chin. We can look at the world and see the sadness and still have a heart full with joy because we realize I might not be able to solve the world's problems, but I can solve his problem even if it's just letting him know he's not going through it alone. Right? Blessed are the meek, they will inherit the land. Meekness is not a quality appreciated in our culture. I mean, we got a whole reality TV show industry that's built on people being ruthless, the opposite of meek. How can I get over on that person? And we sit back and we go, oh, look at that. I can't believe she just said that to her. And we sit back there and eat our popcorn and we're just like, man, this is good stuff. Well, maybe that's fun to watch on television, but meekness should not be confused with weakness or cowardice. Jesus said, blessed are the meek, not blessed are the doormats, right? 
Like the first beatitude, it has the quality of being humble, seeing ourselves as we are. I'm not perfect, but I'm not a total wretch. I've got my good qualities, I've got my bad qualities, and I'm working on those. And I'm going to work on mine before I tell you how to work on yours. If I do that, then Jesus tells me I'm going to inherit the land. Blessed are they who hunger and thirst for righteousness. They will be satisfied. I love the story of about a young man who wanted to be righteous. And he's walking along the beach with his mentor, this older man. And they're walking on the beach, you know, about water that's about, you know, knee deep. And he says, you know, how, how does one achieve righteousness? How does one achieve holiness? And the old man looks at him and says, you really want to know the answer to that question? Oh, yes. Are you sure you want to know the answer to that question? You sure? Yeah. And all of a sudden, the old man looks up, puts his hands on his shoulders, grabs him by, you know, his shirt. And with the strength that he didn't know he had, lifts him up and plunges him down in the water. It's only knee deep, but he's holding him underwater. And at first, he says, okay, whatever. He struggles trying to get out, and he struggles trying to get out, and he can't get out, and he can't get out. And this old man's stronger than he looks, and he, his face is like inches from the surface, but he can't get there. And just about the time he's about ready to give up and just hand himself over to drowning, the old man picks him up out of the water. And what the hell was that about? You want to be righteous. You want to be holy. You got to want it as bad as you wanted air about five seconds ago. We got to want it. Do we really want it? I say my prayers. St. Michael the Archangel, defend us in battle, be our protector. But do I just expect St. Michael to come swooping in and do all the work? No. Yes, he's going to give me the grace. God's going to give me whatever grace I need, but I got to cooperate with it. I got to want it. I got to hunger and thirst for it. We've all at one time in our lives been really hungry, you know, and there's not any food around. We finally get that food. It's like, oh, my gosh, oh, my God. Oh, I thought I was going to die. None of us were probably in the state of being ready to die, but it seemed that way. Do we hunger and thirst for God that way? Well, Jesus says, if you hunger and thirst for me in that manner, you will be satisfied. With all the finest food, all the finest drink. You know, St. Paul says, I has not seen, nor has ear heard, nor the mind of man imagined what God has in store for those who love him. I always think about that scene in Star Wars when Luke's trying to convince, you know, um, what's his name? Uh, Solo to go rescue Princess Leia. You know, if you're, she's a princess. If we rescue her, the reward would be, and he goes, the reward would be what? Well, well, more money than you could imagine. He says, I don't know, I can imagine quite a bit. Well, I don't know what St. Paul's talking about, but I have a pretty good imagination on what heaven is like. And he tells me, you're not even close. I want that. Do I hunger and thirst for it? Do all my actions indicate that I want to go to heaven? I want that so bad. I'm going to get it if I want it. Um, Peter Crave wrote that there are three types of people in this world. Those who seek God and have found him. Those who seek God and will find him. 
and those who neither seek nor find, because Jesus says, if you seek, you will find. Bertrand Russell said the reason why he was an atheist was because God left so little evidence of his presence. God leaves evidence of his presence, but not enough to overwhelm our free will. God wants us to choose him freely. Just like if we're in love with somebody, we want them to love us back of their own free will. Not because we've forced them into it, we've chained them to you know, a post and made them stay with us. No, but because they want to. They love us like we love them. God loves us more than we can imagine. And all he says, all he can do is try to persuade us to love him in return. Blessed are the merciful, they shall be shown mercy. Mercy is a willingness to forgive others, even when they do not deserve it. The hardest of the Christian virtues comes a little bit later in the Ten Commandments at the end of chapter 5, or the Beatitudes at the end of chapter 5. Jesus says, you have heard it said, you shall love your, love your neighbors and hate your enemies. I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. No other religious leader, no other religious system requires that of its followers. Not Judaism, not Islam, not Buddhism, not any, any of them. This is uniquely Christian. Be merciful. What do we say? I was, at, I was in retreat in seventh grade. I still remember it, and I still remember the priest who said it. Shows you how impactful it was. Father, Father Bob Matzinger, Mary may remember him. Beautiful Brazilian priest. And he, I, was, I remember confessing I was angry with somebody who was having trouble forgiving them. And, he's, and he had this Irish accent like this. He says, Tommy, I want you to go out for your penance. And I want you to, to say, one, our father. And I want you to concentrate on this line. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And I remember going to the chapel and praying on that. You mean, God, when I say that, all these years I've been saying that and haven't been paying attention, what I'm saying is, I'm handing you the measuring stick I want you to use against me? I started being a lot more forgiving. Because I used to say, I'm going to forgive this person, but I'm going to make him sweat it out a little bit first, you know. Well, I'm telling God, I want you to forgive me, but make me sweat it out a bit first. Well, I don't want to have to sweat it out. So I try to forgive more easily, right? These are linked to the corporal works of mercy and the spiritual works of mercy. This is when it would be good in your catechism. Look up the corporal and the spiritual works of mercy. And that's when you'll learn what it means not only on a physical level to engage in acts of mercy, but on a spiritual level how to engage in acts of mercy. Blessed are the clean of heart, they will see God. That's pretty simple. Those of us that wear contact lenses or glasses, we know when they get smudged, it's very difficult to see the world. But when our hearts are smudged with sin and darkened, our visions darkened because of the cloud of sin, it makes it very difficult to see God. If we wonder why God seems so far away, maybe the best thing to say is, who moved, me or him? One spiritual writer said, the furthest that God can ever go from us is the length of our arm. Do we push him away 
by not being pure of heart. When we purify our hearts, we open our arms and he's able to come in and be close to us and we can see him more clearly. Blessed are the peacemakers. They shall be called children of God. Jesus wants us to live with everybody forever in heaven in paradise. When we work to be peacemakers, we can truly be called his children. God's always reaching out in reconciliation and in, 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 in peacemaking, do we? And then, of course, the last parts of the commandment, uh, the last parts of the Beatitudes deal with those that are persecuted for the sake of righteousness. Don't we see a lot of that going on in Europe, in Asia, and on the continent of Africa right now? And in our own country, too. We're not spotless in this regard. That people are persecuted simply for being faithful Christians. Jesus predicted it. One of the most moving lines in the movie, The Passion of the Christ, for me, was Jesus, you know, being scourged, obviously. But there's one point where they cut back to, they keep cutting back to the Last Supper. And at one particular point, Jesus looks at his apostles and says, if the world hates you, know that it hated me first. Christians are weird in the fact that we rejoice in our sufferings, as St. Paul says, because when we find ourselves suffering for his name, we realize we're doing it right. It's hard to take persecution as a sign of success. But it's a clear reminder, if you ever want to read something, read Father Walter Sizik with God in Russia about a priest who, was, who voluntarily went to the Soviet Union during the Cold War to minister to people who had no priest to minister to them, to them in, in Russia. And he was captured and sent to a concentration camp, not a labor camp uh, in, um, in Russia for over 20 years. And... And he writes this book called With God in Russia. And, and he talks about the meaning of blessedness. And it means sometimes our whole world is turned upside down. But that's when we know that God is trying to remind us that like the Israelites of old, we are fully dependent on God and God alone. That we are his and he's ours. And so we've got to learn to take those times of persecution as really grace crashing into our lives, even though it doesn't look like it. The 20th century, believe it or not, was the bloodiest century for the church. We had more martyrs in the 20th century than all the other centuries combined. It's hard to believe when you think about the Romans you know, and how they persecuted the early church. Well, the Romans had nothing on the 20th century. And the 21st century is not off to a really good start in the first 19 or 20 years of it. And so it reminds us that while we are in this world and it is a good world, it's not a perfect world. It's a broken world. It's a world that's filled with sin. And it is our temporary home. And so by looking and trying to live the commandments and follow the Beatitudes, we're going to be able to enjoy this life as much as possible. We're going to be able to build up the kingdom of God here on earth and hopefully successfully when we 
end our life, when our life ends and we go before our maker, he looks at us and says, well done, good and faithful servant. Let's close with a prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. It's another prayer from St. Ignatius of Loyola called the Prayer for Generosity. Lord, teach me to be generous. Teach me to serve you as you deserve. To give and not to count the cost. To fight and not to heed the wounds. To toil and not to seek for rest. To labor and not to seek reward. Except that of knowing I do your will. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Now, I went a few minutes over. I went about four minutes over. I'm sorry about that. But uh, anybody have any questions they would like to ask? I covered a lot in a very short amount of time. I realized that. Everybody waits for the first person to ask a question. I always want to stage somebody in the audience to ask the first question just to break the ice. Yeah. Yes, sir. What was the time frame in between? Uh, as best I can remember, and I'm, I'm not a historian, Moses led the people out of Egypt around the year 1200 BC. Um, it's around that time period because David comes along around 950 BC and that's about 300 years or so. Uh, the Ten Commandments uh, took place uh, towards the beginning of Jesus's earthly ministry. So probably around the year 29. So we're talking about 1200 years difference or so. Okay, does that sound about right? Yeah. Good question. Yes, sir. Oh, okay, go ahead. Uh, we should invite people to join us, uh, share our time, food, and stuff. But society loves, leaves us making, makes it difficult. What do we do then? For sure. I mean, it's very difficult. I, I know how our cultures have changed. When I was a little kid, who locked their doors? Who, I mean, we knew all of our neighbors. I'd go to my next door neighbor's house to play. We walked right into the house. Now it's, we all lock our doors. We don't know our neighbors. We're friends with people that are 20 miles away, you know? And so, you know, and, and we, we've, and our culture has caused us to view everyone with suspicion, right? I, I was filling up my car just yesterday and a man, you know, came walking up to me at the gas station. Of course, what immediately goes through your head? He's gonna ask me for some money, right? Well, that wasn't what he was going to ask me on. And what does he say? I I'm not asking you for money. <laughs> I was like, okay. You know, I think the challenge is just like it's always been, and that is to take a risk. Christianity's risky. You know, Jesus, none of us got any place without taking risk. And so I think we got to be willing to risk, willing to be vulnerable. Again, Jesus warns us to be as gentle as doves, but as, you know, as sly as foxes. We can't just allow people to walk all over us, but we gotta take those chances. I think we start with our own families. You know, we don't necessarily have to go to the streets of Calcutta or even to the inner city of Houston. There's people in our own workplace, you know, that need help. Um, one of the things that our, my parents have always encouraged my brothers and I to do this, and we've done it just kind of out of second nature, I have, in my own department, there are people from 13 different states. 
And some of them are young and single and can't afford to fly home at the holidays. And, you know, Thanksgiving, Christmas, maybe they can fly home for one, but they can't fly home for it. I just always make it a point of personally going up and say, do you, do you have some place, or are you doing anything for Thanksgiving? Are you doing anything for Christmas? If they tell me, yeah, I'm flying home, great, that's awesome. But if not, hey, listen, my mom always makes enough food to feed an army. you got to come help us out here. I would love to have you come over. And I tell you, more often than not, we've got just as many people that my brothers and I have invited over for Thanksgiving and Christmas than we have of our own family as people have gotten older and they're doing their own things. So I think starting where we're at, where God has put you, in your workplace, in your home, in your neighborhood, you know, start there. And, and God will lead you to those people who are in need. If you say, open my eyes to see them, he'll, he'll let you see them. Does that help answer your question? Yeah, I, but it, is, it does require us to take a little bit of a risk and to be countercultural. Yeah. One of the things our boys do at school, they get together. We have, we have a, what's called community time. It's like free time. And they'll get volunteers to make sandwiches. They get bottles of water and they get like... Um, um, other different little things, sometimes a candy bar, sometimes a gift certificate to Walmart or something like that. And they pack up these bags and they keep them in their cars. And what they do is they not just, you know, hand them out to the people on the street, but they actually go out in groups. They go out in groups, usually on a Friday or a Saturday night. And they bring these bags to the people that are living under the bridges or sleeping on the streets in downtown. And not just give them something, but sit and talk with them. Yeah. We're going to do that as a group, actually. We're not going to go out, but we are going to make hope bags for during um, Lent. That will be one of our activities that we'll do. Um, we make a thousand hope bags and... They've got socks in them, they've got vegetables, yeah. they've got socks is a yeah, big that thing, kind of yeah. stuff in there. Um, and then, you know, people can pick them up on Sunday and have them in your car. So if you have something to give to somebody on the street corner, mm -hmm. it's a great thing to do. And I always try to say, you know, you know, say God bless you. You know, yes. because just to let them know that you're praying for them, you know, I can't, you know, I can't solve all your problems, but I can give you that human interaction. The that's so great. The school always write it down. God bless you, and mm -hmm. there's a picture, yeah. that kind of thing, so. Yeah. Did you have another one, Bill? Another question? Yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. Another one would be, this is good. Uh-huh. So, do, you, do you believe, or do you think there's such a thing as a necessary lie, or a good lie? Oh, that's always a good one. Um, and, and it's very easy. I could answer that just very quickly by saying, Satan, you know, Satan's the father of all lies, including little white lies. I always try to say... And I remember I going, <laughs> I was, all these things happen on retreats. I was, I was dating a girl in college, and I had gone on a retreat where we were really encouraged to speak truth in all of our words. And I get home from the retreat, my girlfriend meets me, and we were going to go out, and she says, oh, I, gotta, I can't wait to show you this new dress I bought. Well, she bought, I, I thought it was the most hideous thing I'd ever seen. And I thought, well, I don't have to say anything, right? And so but then she point blank directly asked me, what do you think of my new dress? And I'm like, oh, God, first thing off of the retreat. And I think I said something like that. You would look good in anything, you know. And she goes, 
you don't like it, do you? I said, you want me to be honest? You know, like, and then we kind of had some fun with it. But, yeah, obviously, but a situation that's not, that's a little bit more drastic. Like, you know, somebody comes knocking on your door. Are you hiding any Jews from the Gestapo? You know, it's like, yeah, yeah, damn, they're up in the attic, you know. Um, no, I think in certain situations, you would say, they're, you know, life, you know, you're harming life by... Telling the truth. And that's when you get into the whole letter of the law versus the spirit of the law. And Jesus was very much a believer in the letter of the law, but he said the spirit of the law was even more important. And um, I don't think it's very, but we always walk a tricky road because we're, we're people that can learn to justify anything. Well, you know, and you start giving all the justifications. But I think if somebody's life is on the line, then I think it can be justified. Um, and, and, and Mary can talk to you probably more at some point about like, you know, an action can be wrong, you know, lying is always wrong, but whether or not it was a sinful thing to do is a completely different story. That's what we call culpability, you know, whether you're, you're guilty of having committed a sin. Does that make sense? Yes, yes. Yeah. Oh yeah, I would lie to save somebody's life. They don't hurt me. Yeah. Oh yeah, for sure. <laughs> again, again, like you, know, if you were a Pharisee in in the Bible, those that were strict observance of the law, they would say, "Sorry, you're never supposed to lie in any situation." Yeah. Good question. Very good question. Yes, ma'am. I'm vague on it, but we just were studying Romans Yes. Uh huh. Yeah. We were thinking of the, uh, the hiding place. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, where it, when it had to do with life, preserving life. Yeah. Uh, property and uh, the other one was to defend. Mm-hmm. She's saying that in Romans, Paul admonishes us to obey human authority. But obviously, if the human authority is asking you to do something immoral, you know, or against God's law, God's law is higher than any human law. That's for sure. Yeah, and that applies. Yeah, exactly. But it's it's always a good it's always a good one. Yeah, I mean that there are always exceptions to the rule, so to speak. Yeah. All right. Thank you, Tommy. All right. Thank you. It's always a pleasure. Tommy actually generated some questions for us. Um, and so what I'm going to ask you guys to do, why don't you guys join that table right behind you? And um, if those two tables can get together, then you, Seth and David, can um, get that table. That'd be great. So.